Good morning, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and today we continue our journey with Job, and we're in chapter 21. Some Bibles at this chapter have a subheading that says something along the lines of, Why do the wicked prosper? Or, Why do the wicked have it so good? It's really an important question in the way that we perceive God. Does God favor the wicked? Does God not see their wickedness? Does God just cut them a bunch of slack? Why do, the opposite question is, why do good people suffer? Right? The two belong together. Why do good people suffer? And why do evil people prosper? It doesn't seem fair. But then, God doesn't view fairness like we view fairness. Um, you know, my my grandmother used to say, when I'd say it isn't fair, she'd say, well, the fair only comes once a year and it's not September. So I get it. Life isn't fair. No one promised us it would be fair. I don't know why from about the age of 10 or 11, we think that things should be fair because for all of our complaining and whining, they never are. But something in us believes that God should somehow be fair. Well, let's listen to Job chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. So Job replied, Now listen to me carefully. Please listen. At least do me the favor of listening. Put up with me while I have my say. Then you can mock me later to your heart's content. It's not you I'm complaining to. It's God. Is it any wonder I'm getting fed up with his silence? Take a good look at me. Aren't you appalled by what's happened? No, don't say anything. I can do without your comments. When I look back, I go into shock. My body is racked with spasms. Why do the wicked have it so good, live to a ripe old age and get rich? They get to see their children succeed, get to watch and enjoy their grandchildren. Their homes are peaceful and free from fear. They never experience God's disciplining rod. Their bulls breed with great vigor and their cows calve without fail. They send their children out to play and watch them frolic like spring lambs. They make music with fiddles and flutes, have good times singing and dancing. They have a long life on easy street and die painlessly in their sleep. They say to God, get lost. We've no interest in you or your ways. Why should we have dealings with God Almighty? What's there in it for us? But they're wrong, dead wrong. They're not God's. It's beyond me how they can carry on like that. Still, how often does it happen that the wicked fail or disaster strikes or they get their just desserts? How often are they blown away by bad luck? Not very often. You might say God is saving up the punishment for their children. I say give it to them right now so they'll know what they've done. They deserve to experience the effects of their evil. Feel the full force of God's wrath firsthand. What do they care what happens to their families after they're safely tucked away in the grave? But who are we to tell God how to run his affairs? He's dealing with matters that are way over our heads. Some people die in the prime of life with everything going for them, fat and sassy. Others die bitter and bereft, never getting a taste of happiness. They're laid out side by side in the cemetery where the worms can't tell one from the other. I'm not deceived. I know what you're up to, the plans you're cooking up to bring me down. 
Naively, you claim that the castles of tyrants fall to pieces, that the achievements of the wicked collapse. Have you ever asked world travelers how they see it? Have you not listened to their stories of evil men and women who got off scot-free, who never had to pay for their wickedness? Did anyone ever confront them with their crimes? Did they ever have to face the music? Not likely. They're given fancy funerals with all the trimmings, gently lowered into expensive graves with everyone telling lies about how wonderful they were. So how do you expect me to get any comfort from your nonsense? Your so-called comfort is a pack of lies. Well, here we have the same issue we had in the last chapter. Job doesn't really blame God at this point. He goes on a different tirade. So his friend went on a tirade that that the typical legalistic person takes, right? No matter how you try to talk to a legalistic person, they start extolling the sin of somebody else. So Job answers it with the same kind of vacant argument. He's arguing back that just as his friend said, the wicked always perish from their evil doing. Job says, no, they don't. The wicked get away with everything. The wicked are never punished. So this convinces me that if his friend Eliphaz or Bildad was, was cloaking his comments to say that Job is an evil guy, if he was, Job doesn't get it. Job doesn't say, well, look what happened to me and I'm an evil dude. So no, Job is still arguing that he's innocent and that evil people don't get punished. So between the two arguments in chapter 20 and in chapter 21, between these two guys, right? We have to determine what the real, what the real point is where God actually comes down. And and so it's really, it puts us in a really interesting place. You've got uh, Zophar, sorry, it was Zophar in chapter 20. You've got Zophar saying that the wicked absolutely always get punished. You've got Job saying the wicked absolutely never get punished. And both arguments make sense to us, don't they? We've been taught to believe, and life has showed us enough that people who take the wrong road, who insist on doing evil, who abuse other people, who take advantage of others, who trample on others to get their way, who build their lives on on using other people, life has taught us that those people come to ruin. Maybe now, maybe later, it may be years later. But those people do come to ruin. So Zophar's argument makes sense to us. Yes, if you choose an evil path, you will inherit ruins. But then Job fights back and says, no, maybe in our neighborhood that's true. But have you ever talked to people who travel to other places? Have you ever seen the way evil people live when they're rich? And... And let's face it, a lot of people who've gotten rich have gotten that way by using others or by taking advantage of others or by pushing the limits of what was legal or in some way being a little shady, right? Real massive wealth comes with some compromise. 
I think always. Um, I look at people in my generation who started their businesses in their garage with an idea. And, and those ideas, because of their timeliness and because they were in a niche of business where those folks could quickly own that niche and not let anybody else in, made them filthy rich. There's two or three examples that come straight to mind, right? And we look at the lives that those guys led and it's easy to find compromise there. It's easy to find some pretty significant pain. They've lost relationships. They've ruined marriages. They've lost business partners along the way. There are people who were part of their ground floor operation who, who in the end wouldn't have anything to do with them and told the world how unscrupulous they were, how unethically they behaved. They're still rich. Life still seems to go their way. And so Job says, look, they're still rich and they're still alive and nothing's happened to them. So no, Eliphaz, you're wrong. It doesn't always work. Zophar, I'm sorry, I keep saying the wrong name. No, Zophar, you're wrong. The rich don't always pay the penalty. And that message also resonates with us. And experience has showed us both ways. We know evil people who've absolutely come to ruin, and we know people who've compromised and are wicked, and they're doing wonderfully. A former presidential candidate and her family, who've been rumored to have murdered scores of people. I mean, okay, maybe it's not 48. What if it's only 10? Right? What if only one-fourth of the reports are the truth? What if it's only eight that they've murdered? I think that'd be one-fourth. So where is it that, that we find ourselves tied up in, in what's going on? That, that it's true both the evil people pay for their sin and evil people get rich and, and aren't punished. Where's God? Why isn't life fair, Grandma? Well, honey, because the fair only comes once a year and it's not September yet. God is just, but God is not fair. And it's necessary that that be true. God demands justice. God is not concerned with fairness because if God was fair, we wouldn't have a chance. I want you to think back to the very beginning, to Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve are given charge. The the Bible says dominion. They are the caretakers of all of creation. Everything that is created, they are the caretakers of. Co-regents, co-rulers. Eve just as responsible as Adam is. They are co-rulers. Ish and Isha, the Bible calls them. Not Adam and Eve until the curse. And they are happily ruling together until the serpent slithers in and tempts Eve with the fruit she wasn't supposed to eat. And she eats it and finds out that she won't actually die, which God never told them. They kind of made that up. 
she kind of went an extra step to make God sound exceptionally tough. Oh, her perspective of God was wrong. And the devil takes advantage of it and says, oh, you will not die. Well, they did. They, they died in sin. Their relationship died. The purity of what they had died. See, they got kicked out of the garden. God did not treat them fairly. Because if God had treated them fairly, when they transgressed his one rule, he would have wiped them out. He's God. He could say, that didn't work. Wipe that experiment out, get rid of Adam and Eve, and create another one. He could have done that. But God's not fair. That would have been fair. Wipe them out, start over. We got all the other pieces. We got ocean and we've got land and we've got light and we've got darkness and we've got all the animals and all the living creatures and and everything. All we have to do is wipe out the idiots that can't keep God's word and start over. But God knew that that would never work because the next idiots would be just like the previous idiots. As long as he created men and women in his own image, they would have the power to choose because he wanted to live with them in a relationship of love. And any relationship of love requires the ability to choose. As long as I've got choices, I'm not a victim. In my career, I've heard lots of couples come to my office and the poor guy talk about how horrible his wife was or the poor wife talk about how horrible her husband was. And, and they want to take the place of victim. They want to rush to being the one with victim status, the one who's abused, the one who's hemmed in on all sides. But when you start to talk to them about what choices do you have, they've got choices. They can stay. They can go. They can change the, the operational rules of where they are. They can make any number of changes because they have any number of choices. When you have choices, you're not a victim. When you have choices, you are not a victim. Victims are people whose choices have all been taken away from them. That's a real victim. Just because you're uncomfortable, you're not a victim. Adam and Eve tried to play the victim card. And God, instead of being fair, was just. And justice demands that somebody pay a price. And so in Adam and Eve's situation, when they realized they were naked, the just God penalized something else. He's not fair. He's very partial. Because if he was fair, he would have wiped them out and started over. He's not. He's just. And so two animals had to give their lives to clothe Adam and Eve in their nakedness. And they only realized their nakedness because of their own failure, their own sin. A fair God would have wiped them out. God's not fair. He's partial. He's partial to his creation. He's partial to his people with whom he wanted to have a relationship. Once he called them his people and entered into covenant with them, he became even more partial to them. And so when he made covenant with Abraham, 
Remember the story of the smoking fire pot between the halves of the of the slaughtered animals? Abraham goes to sleep. He wakes up. And the fire pot is passing his direction and God's direction in God's hand. The suzerainty treaty was something along the lines of you would pass through the sliced up animals and you would wave the fire pot and you would say, if ever I break the bonds of this treaty that we established today, may what's been done to these animals be done to me. But God took both, both sides. If ever I violate the bonds of this treaty, may what's been done to these animals be done to me. Well, God's not going to violate the treaty. We're the question. So God walks the other way. God walks Abraham's direction with the fire pot and says, if ever you violate the bonds of this treaty, May what's been done to these animals be done to me. God takes both sides so that his people can't lose. Could they keep the law? No. And God knew they couldn't. Could they be perfect? No. And God knew they couldn't. Would they ultimately fail if all they had to rely on was fairness and law? Yes, and God knew they would. And so in that smoking firepot ceremony, he takes both sides. He takes the responsibility for those people. What's that mean? That means at some point, justice is going to have to prevail. Someone or something is going to have to pay the just price Because if God is fair, those people will be wiped out. So he chooses instead to be just. And justice brings us Jesus Christ. Who becomes, the Bible says, the just sacrifice for sin. One time and for all. Jesus paid the price. The hymn says... Jesus paid it all. That's the truth. The question that that Job and Zophar are arguing here in Job 19 and 20 is this question of why isn't God fair? And the answer is very simple. God is not fair because God is just. Now, justice is very different than fairness. Fairness is a pair of scales that measures out every every serving, every opportunity, every, every instance, every event, and makes sure that both sides get exactly the same. So if my brother gets a reward, I get a reward. If my brother misbehaves and gets punished, Fairness says that I will also get punished even though I didn't do anything wrong. I was with him. I chose not to commit the robbery, but he did, and I was with him. So by association, if life is fair, I pay the same price because I didn't stop him. I committed a different sin, the sin of silence, right? After he robbed the store, I didn't beat him up and take the money that he stole and send it take it back to the shop owner. So I'm as guilty as he is. Fairness, 
Fairness makes me guilty by association. Fairness means when my brother's rewarded, I'm rewarded. When my brother's punished, I'm punished. We like the positive side of fairness. Nobody likes the negative side of it. That's not fair. (laughs) You only hear children say that when somebody gets something they don't get that's positive. But when another kid gets punished, you don't hear any kid around them saying, that's not fair. They get really quiet and they tend to walk away just in case fairness should happen to descend. We do the same thing as adults. We're just much more subtle about it. Nobody wants the negative side of fairness. We think we don't want justice and yet we continually choose it. The guy who robs the store pays the price. That's justice. The really weird thing about God's justice is that he allowed somebody who hadn't committed any of the crimes to pay the price for all the crimes so that anyone who ever committed a crime in the future could be forgiven by that one sacrifice. That's crazy, isn't it? When you think about it in terms of fairness versus justice, the sacrifice of Christ is is just Remarkable, remarkably crazy, remarkably unbalanced, remarkably unfair. That Jesus would bear the cross alone and all the world go free. Yet there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. Must Jesus bear the cross alone? Yes. Yes, he must. If you and I are to ever see heaven, if you and I are to ever be pleasing to God, someone has to pay the price for the idiots that we are and all the wrong things we'll ever do. That someone was Jesus. I used to make fun of my Catholic friends because in their church, Jesus is always on the cross. And and I went to a couple of churches when I was in Seattle that adhere to the bleeding heart of Jesus kind of theory, the holy heart. And, and on the cross in their churches, Jesus is hanging on the cross and his, and his chest is open so that you can see his heart. And there's like a sun shining out of his heart, but it's, it's bleeding profusely. And I, when I first encountered it, I thought, that's kind of cannibalistic, weird, macabre. And, and it is, but it's, it's a purpose. There's a purpose to it. It's to remind us that this is how fair God is. He's not at all. He's partial to you and I. So just as he took the lives of a couple of animals to clothe Adam and Eve in their, in their skins... He allows his son Jesus to go to the cross and give his life. God didn't take it from him. Jesus was very clear. He gave it to be the sacrifice for our sin, to to pay that price. Not because God was mad at him. I really hate penal substitutional theory that, that God took our punishment out on Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus submitted to that. Jesus signed up, volunteered, willingly went to the cross, willingly surrendered his life. 
because he knew in God's eyes it would be the heartbreaking sacrifice that would that would take the place of every sin for all time. He also knew that for hard-hearted human beings, the only chance that the hard-hearted had was that someone sometime in history would do something so heartbreaking that it might get through to them. If you can hear the story of Jesus Christ accurately and it doesn't break your heart, then there truly is no hope for you. Because that's the most heartbreaking story anywhere in world history. If it doesn't move you, you've got a problem. Worse than a mental problem, you've got a spiritual heart problem. Because Jesus, Jesus bet, he, he counted on that if he would do something absolutely heartbreaking, he could get through to you. And he could make you consider the fact that God isn't fair, that God loves you, that God is partial to you, that God would accept that sacrifice for your wrongdoing, for your sin, for your mistakes, for your in your, your fallibilities. Not only that, God would accept that sacrifice as forgiveness for your intentional wrongdoings. You're bent to sinning, as the old-timers called it. Your proclivity for doing the wrong thing. Your stupidity, if you want to put it that way. Jesus wagered that if he went to the cross, your heart would break enough that you would consider how partial God is to you, that you would understand how much God loves you. John 3.16, it's on the placards at all the football games. For God loved the world so much that he allowed his only son Jesus to be the sacrifice for your sin and mine so that whomever would believe in him would not die but would have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it but to save it. The answer to Zophar and to Job is simply this. God is not fair. The evil people don't always get punished. The righteous people don't always prosper. The evil people don't always prosper. Righteous people sometimes get punished. It seems like at least bad things happen to them sometimes. It's not really punishment. It's just life. Because life and the one who created it aren't fair. He's just. The good news about that is that if you have asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, and again, I'll say, whether it was an emotional moment at a, at a, a crying bench somewhere, or it was the result of the process of your church to involve you in, in catechism and in confession and in your first baptism or in your baptism and your first communion and you took confirmation vows. I'm okay with that process because you were taught clearly what it meant the whole way along. 
I'm just asking you to go back and keep your confirmation vows, to remember what it was that you committed to God that day and go back to living in that. That means Christ is your Lord, that God has your life in his hands and that you have asked him to appropriate the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the forgiveness for your sins and to live in a relationship with you from that day on. You may have walked away from him. You may have just done it because your parents had you do it. Made you is what we would have said then. I don't care. I want you to consider what you said you would be and do. I want you to consider whether it was an emotional moment at the crying bench or or a celebratory moment with your confirmation class. Did you mean it? Did you mean it? Then go back to that. Because the evil don't always get punished. The righteous don't always live carefree. Nobody lives carefree. God is just. And, And if you're not in Jesus Christ that justice will visit you one day. You may prosper for a season. You may have a great life of of plenty. But one day you'll have to stand before God. That's what gets left out in Job 20 and 21, in Zophar and Job, that one day you have to answer. I don't know that they could understand that, but we do. And I want you to be ready.